This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Eastern Orthodox Studies 
at the University of Oxford. He has authorized numerous books and articles pertaining to the Orthodox Christian faith. His grace is perhaps best known as the author of the book, The Orthodox Church, published when he was a layman in 1963, and has been revised several times. In 1979, he produced a companion volume, The Orthodox Way. A monk, a priest, bishop, theologian, scholar, author, but most of all, a pastor. It gives me great pleasure to introduce to you Metropolitan Clauses. Brother bishops, fathers, friends, on this feast day of St. Nicholas, I am happy to greet you and to be with you. The title that I have chosen for my address this evening is The Holy Icon, Doorway, into the kingdom of heaven. I have a particular reason for including the word doorway in my title. The series of lectures of which my address forms part and the notable exhibition of icons with which this series of lectures is linked are taking place at the beginning of the Year of Faith celebrated by Catholics throughout the world. Announcing this Year of Faith, His Holiness Pope Benedict entitled his apostolic letter Porta Fidei, The Doorway of the Faith. Now, the holy icon is exactly a doorway of the faith. And though the Pope, in using that phrase, was not thinking directly of the icon, yet his words apply precisely to my theme tonight, as we shall see in a moment. How central, how fundamental are the holy icons in the spiritual life of the Christian East, both Catholic and Orthodox. How impoverished 
our religious experience would be without the icons. If we did not have icons, how much warmth, how much joy would be lacking in our prayer and worship? In the Christian East, whether Orthodox or Catholic, there is no act of prayer, either at church or in the home, that is not accompanied by the holy icons. They are with us everywhere. This evening, indeed, I've brought with me a small icon that I always have when I'm writing or when I'm giving talks at conferences. This is an icon that shows our Lord Jesus Christ as an angel, and it is known as the icon of blessed silence, Blagoi Molchanie. So I keep this icon before me because theologians and bishops have a tendency to talk too much. <laughs> it's a warning to me as I write and speak. St. Ignatius of Antioch even says that we should respect the bishop much more when he keeps silent than when he speaks. <laughs> I was taught a threefold rule when giving addresses. Stand up, speak up, and shut up. The first two are easier to do than the third. <laughs> Let's start tonight by asking the elementary question, what is an icon? The Greek word, ikon, you will tell me, means likeness, reflection, or image. When you look in the mirror, and you see your own face, what you are looking at is an icon of yourself. When Narcissus saw his face reflected in a pool of water and fell in love with what he saw, he was looking at his own icon. So, in itself, the word icon can have a very broad application. If then we are speaking of the icon in a religious context, we need to qualify the word by saying not just icon, but holy icon. What in that case is a holy icon? What special image or reflection do we find embodied in the holy icon? An excellent definition is given to us in a text from the 8th century, the life of St. Stephen the New, who died as a martyr in defense of the holy icons during the iconoclast controversy. In this work, the icon is described as a doorway, thera. What does that mean? a doorway, a means of entry. 
but an entry or means of access into what? Extending the metaphor, we may say that the holy icon is a point of meeting, a place of encounter. But encounter with what or whom? In answer, it may be said that the icon is a doorway into the kingdom of heaven. It is a means of access into the age to come. It is a point of meeting and encounter with the communion of saints. In this way, the icon as a doorway fulfills a mediating function. The icon makes persons and events present to us. Through the icon, we meet the person that is shown to us, whether it is Christ the Savior, the Mother of God, one of the angels, or one of the saints. For example, St. Nicholas, who is watching over me here. If it is an icon of a particular event, the Nativity, the Transfiguration, the Resurrection, then we may say that through the icon we participate in the mystery that is depicted. Participation, that's a key word in the theology of the icon. Thus, the theology of the icon is par excellence a theology of presence. Often the icon is described as a window, and that is certainly appropriate. But we go further when we call the icon, as I have done tonight, a door. A window is something through which we look, gazing upon the landscape from a distance. But a door is something through which we pass, so that we ourselves become part of the landscape. Moreover, doors are two-way, so that the icon is not only a door through which we pass into the heavenly kingdom, but a door through which the dwellers in the heavenly kingdom pass to meet us face to face. That's why I've described the icon as a point of meeting, a place of encounter. The icon makes persons and events present to us immediately and personally. The icon initiates us into the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you enter an Eastern Christian place of worship, Orthodox or Catholic, the first thing that will strike you is the iconostasis, the icon screen, dividing the sanctuary from the nave. Sometimes people complain about the iconostasis and they say that it hides things from them. In answer to that, 
the Russian priest theologian, Father Pavel Florensky, rightly insisted that the iconostasis hides nothing from us. On the contrary, it reveals supernatural realities to us and makes them immediately accessible. St. Simeon of Thessalonica, writing in the early 15th century, speaks of the icon screen as marking the frontier between earth and heaven. The icon screen, that is to say, makes the kingdom of heaven present to us here on earth. Through the icon screen, the persons depicted upon it, for example, the person of Christ, the high priest, the person of the Holy Mother of God with her child, and along with them, saints and angels, the members of the heavenly realm are all present to us. The icon screen does not hide, it reveals. The icon screen does not act as a division, but as a bridge. A point of meeting, an encounter with the Savior and the saints. This means that when we look at an icon, we are being challenged and judged. We may think that we can judge the icons. We may go upstairs to the gallery and say, yes, I like that icon, and no, I don't like that one. But in fact, it's not we who are judging the icon. When you look at an icon, the icon is judging you. Now let's look at some of the consequences of this definition of the icon as a doorway, a means of entry, a point of meeting. There are three consequences in particular that I would like to mention. When I was uh, ordained priest, I remember asking the bishop who ordained me for advice about my future ministry. And he said, always have three points in your sermon, not less and not more. So I like to have three points in my lectures. When I was consecrated bishop, I asked the chief consecrator for his advice about my Episcopal ministry. And he said, always fold up your own vestments at the end of the service. <laughs> Don't let the deacons do it. Well, I try to follow both those pieces of advice. Actually, I think it's too much often to have three points in a sermon. One point is quite sufficient. And a great many sermons we hear seem to have no point at all. <laughs> so, uh, three points in honor of the Holy Trinity. And here let me tell you a little story about the Trinity. Once upon a time, there was a bishop going 
to the, by boat to the monastery, the Solovetsky monastery in the far north of Russia. And as they traveled, they passed various islands. And the captain of the ship said to him, pointing to a nearby island, that's a very interesting place. There are three hermits on the island. And the bishop said, let's turn aside and visit them. So they did. As they approached the island, the three hermits, who definitely had a premonition that a bishop was coming to visit them, were standing side by side holding hands on the beach with their long white beards. And the bishop questioned them, how do you pray, holy men? And the hermits said, this is how we pray. Three are ye, three are we. Have mercy on us. Ah, oh, said the bishop, that's not actually the correct way to pray. Uh, do you use the Lord's Prayer? No, holy bishop, they said. We've never heard of that. So he spent the whole afternoon teaching them the Lord's Prayer, getting them to learn it by heart, and they kept forget it, forgetting it, but he kept repeating it. And at last they said, yes, now we remember the Lord's Prayer. And so the bishop returned to his boat, continued on his journey, feeling he'd done a good afternoon's work. But the experience of meeting the three hermits was so strange. These three holy men standing hand in hand with their long white beards on the shore, that the bishop couldn't settle down to go to his cabin and to sleep. He sat long after sunset on the deck. Then suddenly, in the far distance, he saw a light moving rapidly across the water towards the boat. And as it came closer, he saw it was the three hermits skimming over the waves, bright with light, their long beards flowing in the wind and gleaming. The bishop, in great astonishment, stood at the rail of the boat, and as the three hermits approached, they called out to him, Holy Bishop! We have forgotten the prayer you taught us. Teach us again. And the bishop said, Holy men, you pray to God in your own way. I have nothing to teach you. Go in peace. And so the three hermits turned back, skimmed across the water and disappeared. Though long after they'd Gone over the horizon, a light could be seen in the night. So, three are ye, three are we. The Trinity is the heart of our life, and that's why I like to choose three points in my talks. First, the icon exists in a context a context of 
prayer and worship. And if you take an icon out of that context, it ceases to be truly a holy icon and it no longer acts as a door. Now, many people buy icons and hang them up on their walls, treating them simply as works of art. I'm glad they do this. And I'm confident that in many cases the icons hanging on their walls have a positive effect on them. But the icon, though it is a work of art, is not a work of art on a level with other works of art. An icon is not simply an aesthetic object that you may admire, noting the color, the style, the expression on the faces, analyzing the period and the particular school to which the icon belongs in art history. If the icon is treated in this way, merely on the art historical level, we have missed the real point about it. In contrast to other works of art, the icon is essentially part of an act of prayer and worship. It is not simply a piece of decoration designed to make the church look nice. It is much more than that. The art of the icon is supremely a liturgical art. That is the first consequence of regarding the icon as a doorway into the heavenly kingdom. Some years ago in England, the Sunday Times ran a feature article interviewing different people who owned icons. Most of them were clearly unbelievers, though it was also evident that their icons meant a great deal to them. In a somewhat inarticulate manner, they said things such as, there's something different about an icon something mysterious, something strange. I don't like to sit smoking cigarettes in front of the icon. <laughs> the icon changes the atmosphere in my room. Now, the last person who was interviewed, Count Alexei Bobrinskoy, an expert at the auction house Christie's, was the only one who was an Orthodox Christian. And he was the only one who came to the real point. When asked what icons meant to him, he replied firmly, I pray in front of my icons. There he precisely indicated what makes the icon different, what makes it mysterious, what gives it power. The icon is part of an act of prayer, part of the liturgy, and if divorced from the liturgy, it loses its true identity. There is a second point arising directly from the first. Prayer and theology are inseparable. Liturgy and dogma cannot be divided. In the words of one of the Desert Fathers of the fourth century, Evagrius of Pontus, the theologian is the one who prays. And if you pray in truth, you are a theologian. So the icon, 
the art of the icon, as a liturgical art, is also a theological art. The icon is theology in line and color. There is an essential link between the icon and the gospel. The gospel is the word proclaimed. The icon is the word depicted. The two are correlative and complementary. The gospel is an icon in words, and the icon is the gospel in pictures. So the Seventh Ecumenical Council, the Second Council of Nicaea, held in 787, when defining the place of the icon in the Christian church, insisted that it is to be venerated in the same way as the Book of the Gospels and also the cross. The link between icon and gospel is greatly emphasized by St. John of Damascus. His three homilies on the holy icons are still the best patristic work for anyone who, to read who wishes to enter deeply into the meaning of the holy icon. And I note that there's a copy of that book exactly on the table over there. Also, another book on icons I would particularly recommend, and I think that's for sale over there as well, is the book of Leonid Uspensky and Vladimir Olosky, The Meaning of Icons. So, there are copies there for you to buy at the end, and I don't get a commission. <laughs> the icon is rightly to be seen as a proclamation of the faith, as part of holy tradition. In the painting of icons, human creativity is by no means excluded. Different iconographers paint each in their own distinctive style. But the icon does not depend simply on the invention of, of the iconographer or his private imagination, for it is an expression of the saving truth upheld in holy tradition. For this reason, it is particularly appropriate that you here in Villanova University have chosen to mark the year of faith by organizing an exhibition of icons. And I congratulate Father Richard Canuli and Archpriest John Perich with their helpers for the initiative that they've taken. So the icon then as a theological art has an integral place in any year of faith. Then there is a third consequence of the approach to the holy icons that I am outlining. The art of the icon is not only a liturgical art and not only a theological art, it is also a sacramental art. As I've already commented, the icon performs a mediating function. It renders present. 
just as the holy sacrament of the Eucharist renders Christ truly present to us in the gifts of bread and wine that have been consecrated and have become his body and blood, so on another level the icons render Christ truly present to us. They perform a sacramental function. Obviously, in the case of the icons, the presence of Christ is on a significantly different level from his presence to us in the Holy Eucharist. The icons, even when blessed, remain wood and paint, whereas the bread and wine, once consecrated, are not merely an icon of the body and blood of Christ, but after consecration, they become nothing less than his true and actual body and blood. Nevertheless, there is an authentically real presence of Christ in his icon. As the Seventh Ecumenical Council insisted, divine grace is present in the icon and is communicated to those who offer veneration to it. Let me now, in this next part of my talk, submit to you three quotations, three again, that may serve as a guide to illuminate our path. One quotation is from Scripture, one from the liturgy, and one from a novelist. My scriptural quotation is from the prologue of St. John's Gospel, John 1.14, the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory. Here in these words of St. John, we have the foundation and justification of all Christian iconography. And this is a master theme in St. John of Damascus. In the Old Testament, St. John of Damascus says, it was not possible for there to be any icon of God, for no one has seen God at any time. But this has been changed by God's incarnation. Because the Word has become flesh, God can now be represented. Not God the Father, but God the Son, who became man and reveals the Father's glory to us. And so, says John of Damascus, we can make an icon of the God who can be seen. Yet we must go further than this. If God can be represented, God the Son, that is, God made man, then he must be represented. This is a key point of the argument of the iconodules, the defenders of the holy icons, in their struggle against the iconoclasts during the 8th and 9th centuries. Not to make an icon of Christ is to suggest that somehow his flesh, his human body, is unreal, imaginary, a mere phantasm. 
Thus, the icon safeguards and guarantees our faith in the full reality of the incarnation. My second quotation is from the Divine Liturgy. The phrase used after the narrative of the institution of the Eucharist at the Last Supper and before the invocation of the Holy Spirit, the epiclesis, upon the holy gifts. The celebrant elevates the pattern and chalice, saying, Thine own from thine own we offer unto thee in all things and for all things. To understand the deeper meaning of this phrase, let us ask ourselves, what is unique about the human animal? What it is it that makes us different from the other animals? Sometimes it is said that the human animal is an animal that laughs and weeps. That's very true. A sense of humor and a sense of tragedy are integral to our humanness. But I think we may go further than that. Often it's said that the human animal is distinctively an animal that thinks. At the outset of the modern era, the philosopher Descartes stated, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Yes, but in fact it's clear that the higher apes, when confronted by problems and difficulties, do something similar to our human thinking. Perhaps then thinking is not exclusively limited to us humans. And in any case, reason is only one among our faculties as human beings. We are not merely logical animals. We are much more than that. We have a power of intuitive vision, what the Greek fathers called the noose, that is far superior to ratiocination. Again, it's sometimes said that the human animal can be defined as an animal that uses tools, that acts as a craftsman, that builds, alters the environment. This is certainly true. Most of the animals merely live in the world whereas we humans reshape and refashion the world. Once I was traveling back from France, and suddenly I realized that I hadn't bought a present for my parents to give to them on my return. So I rushed into a shop and saw a bottle with a squirrel depicted upon it. I like squirrels, and so I bought the bottle. It was, in fact, a liqueur made from nuts. As I continued on my journey, I reflected on the meaning of this bottle. 
Squirrels do indeed gather nuts. They bury them. They forget where they've put them. They quarrel with other squirrels over their secret store. This last is also a very human characteristic. But there's one thing that squirrels don't do, to the best of my knowledge. They don't make liqueurs out of nuts. <laughs> Only humans can do that. Actually, the liqueur was very nasty. <laughs> it would have been much better to have eaten the nuts on their own in their original state. Yet, it is not, in fact, entirely true to say that only humans alter the environment. After all, beavers build dams and bees construct honeycombs. Once again, we have not identified what is uniquely human. What about love? It's often said that the human animal is an animal capable of love after the image and likeness of God the Holy Trinity. Very true. But the animals also show love for one another and often live in community. Relationship is not a uniquely human quality. Indeed, some animals are more faithfully monogamous than many humans are forming as they do lifelong attachments and showing grief when they lose their partner. So what is it that makes the human animal unique? To me, we come closest to the truth of the matter if we say that the human animal is an animal that offers an animal capable of thanksgiving. Not just a logical or a political animal, but a Eucharistic animal. Only the human animal, consciously and with full freedom, can act as priest of the creation, offering the world back to God. It's interesting sometimes to reflect, what do we do with our hands? Well, we can use our hand to point at people in an accusatory manner. Or we can clench our fist and shake it at people. But there are other more creative, more positive ways of using our hands. Instead of the clenched hand, we can have the open hand. We can open our hands to greet another person and embrace them. We can open our hands to offer. And I think this gesture of offering with open hands can be seen as a central, indeed distinctive, element in our human personhood. Now, this act of offering the world back to God, we perform supremely in the Eucharist. Exactly at the central point in the prayer of consecration, 
when we say, Thine own of thine own, we offer thee in all things and from all things. But we are also exercising our royal priesthood, our potentiality to offer, to be Eucharistic, in many other ways. The scientist, through his research, is offering the world back to God. Even if he's an unbeliever. The craftsman is doing the same through his technological skills. But among the numerous manners of offering the world back to God, there is not least the making of icons. The iconographer takes wood and paint, material elements in which God's glory is already present, and then as a sub-creator after the image of God the creator, he or she makes that glory manifest in a new way. In so doing, she or he offers the creation back to God in grateful and joyful Eucharist. Thus, icon-making is one expression of our distinctive human privilege and vocation to act as priests of the creation. In this regard, the theology of the icon has profound implications for ecology. Finally, I come to my third quotation. Here I appeal to that great novelist and religious thinker, Fyodor Dostoevsky. My favorite all-purpose anecdote is taken from Dostoevsky's novel, The Brothers Karamazov. It's a story that about an old woman and an onion. I'm sure many of you know it, but I shall tell it all the same. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a wicked old woman, and she died. And after death, she awoke, somewhat to her surprise, to find herself in a lake of fire. Looking out, she saw her guardian angel walking along the bank of the lake. She called out, there has been some mistake. I am a very respectable old lady. I shouldn't be here in this lake of fire. Oh, said the guardian angel, do you ever remember an occasion when you helped somebody else? She thought for a time, and then she said, yes, um, once a beggar came by while I was gardening, and I gave her an onion. Excellent, said the guardian angel. And reaching into his robes, he said, I have this very onion with me here. Let us see what it can do. So, 
she took the other end of the onion and he began to pull her out of the lake. I suppose perhaps it was not actually an onion but a shallot, but the book says an onion. <laughs> now the old woman was not in fact the only person in the lake of fire and when the others saw what was happening they crowded round and hung on in the hope of being pulled out at once. This did not please the old woman. She began to kick, to cry aloud. Let go, she said, let go. It's not you who's being pulled out, it's me. It's not your onion, it's mine. And when she said it's mine, the onion snapped in two and she fell back into the lake of fire. And there, so I am told, she still is. <laughs> well, that's Dostoevsky's story. Um, and I can't think of a way of applying that to icons for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> However, let me take a quotation from another of his novels, The Idiot. There, one of the characters uses the phrase, beauty will save the world. The icon precisely is a manifestation of divine beauty. The theology of the icon is not just a theology of presence, but it affirms and sums up in itself a theology of beauty. It expresses the saving power of beauty. What does this mean? Let's think of the triad found in Hellenic philosophy. The good, the true, and the beautiful. God is good. He is the source of all goodness. God is truth. He is the source of all things true. But God is also beautiful and he is the source of all beauty. His beauty is filled with light and glory. How then does beauty differ from goodness and truth? In God, these three things coincide totally. And yet, each has its distinctive character. The first thing that strikes us about beauty is that it immediately attracts us. It moves our heart. It evokes our longing. It beckons to us, draws us to itself. Goodness and truth may inspire our admiration, but they do not necessarily charm and fascinate us in exactly the way that beauty does. Here it's important to think of an etymological connection. The Greek word for beautiful is kalos, and that is linked with the verb kalo, which means I call, I summon, I invite. That is the distinctive element in beauty. It calls out to us. 
It inspires within us an answering response. Now, the holy icons, by virtue of their spiritual beauty, do exactly that. They call out to us. They draw us to themselves. They awaken in us a joyfulness and an eager desire that brings us closer to God. In short, the holy icons express the attractiveness of God. Now, before I end, there's just one last thing that I would like to add. Though I am conscious that time is marching on, when I first began to lecture, I was always afraid that I would dry up and find I hadn't enough to say. And I was warned by the terrible experience of someone else who began to lecture in the university, and he gave his first lecture on just one day before I was to give mine. He prepared what he thought would last for an hour, but in his nervousness he read it so quickly that he finished it in 20 minutes. <laughs> now, what he should have done was to start all over again. <laughs> to, because clearly people had not understood anything at all. <laughs> but instead he looked up and said, I'm sorry, that's all I've got to say. And he rushed out. But in his confusion, instead of taking the doorway out of the lecture hall, he went and shut himself inside a broom cupboard. <laughs> In a humiliating way, he had to be let out by his audience. <laughs> and that's always stood before me as a terrible warning if you don't have enough to say. Actually, I've never yet dried up. Um, <laughs> so I just want to add one last thing. The year of faith which is being celebrated by the Catholic Church, and we Orthodox can share in the aims of that year of faith, has as a central part of its purpose, I quote, the restoration of unity among all Christians. In his apostolic letter, Pope Benedict said, it was his intention that the year should be, quote, a solemn ecumenical celebration in which all the baptized will reaffirm their faith in Christ. This is an aim that I, as an Orthodox, can wholeheartedly endorse. And in this quest for deeper unity of heart and mind, for greater visible unity, for unity in truth and love without compromise, the holy icon, as a doorway into the kingdom, has a vital part to play. Vertically, the icon, as a manifestation of divine beauty, expresses the attractiveness of God and draws us to him. But its attractive power is revealed not only vertically, but horizontally 
in drawing us closer to God, it also draws us closer to one another. The icon has a universal appeal, not only to Eastern Christians, but to believers throughout the world. Those who have no knowledge of orthodoxy or of church history will yet respond spontaneously to the message of the icon. Through our shared love of the holy icon, we can be powerfully assisted as divided Christians to overcome our separation. The holy icon can act as a strong and creative instrument for unity. Let me end with a prayer from the Liturgy of St. Basil, which sums up exactly our search for unity. May the holy icon help to make this prayer a reality. Unite us all, one with another, in the communion of the one Holy Spirit. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Carlton. Uh, we'll now, if anyone has any questions, the mics are at the end here. Thank you, Mr. Carlton. Uh, I just have um, two questions, if I can indulge you. Uh, first question is um, a question about the icon of the Holy Trinity uh, or the Visitation. I'm wondering uh, what is the reason why the Holy Trinity can be represented in that, in that fashion and in an icon. Second question pertains to icons of saints. My first impression of seeing an icon and a saint is the emotionless and dispassionate character of the, um, of the icon's uh, facial expressions. And if you could take a moment to explain why the, uh, the saints are depicted as being uh, emotionless and dis dispassionate. First, about the icon of the Trinity. In my view, the true icon of the Trinity, the canonical icon of the Trinity, is what is known as the Old Testament Trinity, the icon that shows uh, the three angels who came to visit Abraham under the Oak of Mamre. And this is understood as a symbolic representation of the Holy Trinity. 
you'll all, I think, know the celebrated icon of St. Andrew Rublov of the Trinity, shown in exactly that way. And there is at least one example up in the exhibition of the Trinity so shown. But there is a second form of the icon of the Trinity, which you can also see in the exhibition, uh, often known as the New Testament Trinity. And this shows the Trinity in the form of an old man with a white beard, a young man, and a dove. Now, of course, we have scriptural authority for showing the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And we can undoubtedly show the incarnate Christ as a young man. But I would question the possibility of showing God the Father as an old man with a long white beard. No one has seen God at any time. So I have reservations about this second form of the icon of the Trinity. I suspect that it was introduced into the Orthodox world from the West. And certainly there are examples going back to the 14th century, the famous one uh, from Novgorod, but Novgorod in the west of Russia had many, many contacts with Germany, where at that time it was the custom to depict the Trinity in this way, as old man, a young man, and the dove. So I uh, don't feel very happy about this second icon of the Trinity. Um, some people even say that it is heretical. I think that is too severe a word, but I do not find it appropriate, and I prefer the symbolical iconography as exemplified by Rublov. Then your second question concerned what you felt to be the um, lack of emotion in the icon. I wonder if this is true. Yes, uh, perhaps the icon does not appeal to our emotions in a sentimental way. But I find the holy icons of the Savior, the Theotokos, and the saints and angels to be full of feeling, not on a superficial emotional level, not in a sentimental way. The feeling of the heart. To me, the icons are not cold. They have within them a great warmth. But icons, especially those that come from the classic period, 14th, 15th century, are certainly painted according to a particular convention. And this we may find difficult to understand. It requires on our side a certain discipline 
to enter into the language of the icon. But if we do enter into it, I do not think we will find the figures in the icons distant. They do indeed speak to our heart. Icons of what sometimes, as well as Orthodox Christians, we would say that the traditional, the more Byzantine style. Many of our churches, not just in the U.S., uh, our Orthodox churches and even monasteries um, throughout the world, uh, it, it's not really hard to find one that has icons that um, are of a style perhaps more Reuben or Titian which I can appreciate Rubens and Titian when I go to the museum, but, um, and sometimes the icons are not even that beautiful. They're just kind of misshapen the way they're drawn. But something that's more, let's say, Ruben or Titian type, um, I've heard discussion then in, in parishes or even monasteries uh, who want to redo their icon program and have something traditional, but. What should they do with these plump little cherub depictions? And just if you have anything to say on, on this topic, thank you. Thank you, for ask, thank you for asking that question because it gives me the opportunity to add uh, something to my answer to the question, what is an icon? and something that I didn't, in fact, mention in my talk. An icon, after it has been painted, is blessed. As I said um, at an earlier point, an icon is part of an act of prayer and worship, and it enters into our liturgical life through receiving the prayer of blessing. Actually, in the 8th century, uh, icons weren't blessed. And that was one of the arguments why the opponents of the icons, the iconoclasts, said that icons should not be treated as holy objects. And St. John of Damascus argues that an icon is consecrated through having the name written on it, the name of the Savior, of the Mother of God, or of the saint, or of the mystery depicted. Um, well, in more recent times, icons have certainly been blessed. There are different ways of blessing an icon, and so, in this way, an icon enters into prayer and worship. You can sometimes put the icons on the holy table during the liturgy, and that is considered sufficient. But there are special prayers for blessing icons that are often used. Um, they may be sprinkled with holy water. At one period, icons were even blessed with the holy myrrh, the chrism, but I don't think that is normally done today. Now, an icon then becomes part of an act of prayer and worship. 
It becomes a holy icon through the blessing. The sanctity of the icon does not depend on its artistic quality. It is, of course, highly desirable that icons should be well painted. I would add highly desirable that they should be painted in the classic style. Uh, and I'm glad that there has been a revival in nearly all Orthodox countries during the 20th century of the true Byzantine Slav style of painting icons. But even if an icon is painted in a Western style, not according to the traditional rules, uh, even if it's badly painted, it is still a holy icon if it has been blessed and brought into an act of worship. So yes, uh, I respect people who have come to venerate and love icons that are not painted in the most traditional style. And it can often hurt and offend people if the icons with which they are familiar are abruptly removed from the church and replaced by Byzantine icons, which perhaps they find initially much more difficult to relate to. So there is need for the greatest sensitivity here, and people have to be educated and trained to learn to understand the distinctive language of the icon. So icons painted in the style of Raphael or Murillo are certainly true icons if they've been blessed and may indeed transmit grace to the worshiper. But it is much better for them to be painted in the true orthodox style. Nevertheless, Your Eminence, uh, since you mentioned Father Pavel uh, Florensky, I have, I'd like you to comment on two aspects of his book, Iconostasis, if you could. Uh, first, since we will have a, a Merce Dreaming icon here at Villanova on Sunday, uh, in the book, uh, Florensky says that, in speaking of uh, miraculous icons, that indeed all icons are miraculous. And the second point is that in the book, Florensky talks about the way in which iconographers are able to depict icons. And it's far beyond me to be able to explain that, except to say that he talks about a sort of a transference of the person's view from our world into a higher world, and that the icon is the remembrance of coming back from that higher world. If you could comment on those. I have a great admiration for Father Pavel Florensky. Uh, as many of you will know, he died as a martyr for the faith in Stalin's prison camps during the 1930s. 
And he is a great theologian, not an easy author to understand, though. And I agree with him that all icons, in a sense, are miraculous. All icons that have been blessed can transmit divine grace to the worshiper, can bring us into contact with the kingdom of heaven. So if we single out certain icons, such as the Kursk Ruta icon that I think is visiting this part of the world at the moment, uh, if we single them out as miraculous, it does not mean that other icons are not miraculous. All, I think, are in themselves miraculous, but certain icons have been so designated because the grace of God has been shown through them in an outstandingly vivid way. But they are merely manifesting in a more powerful manner that which is potentially present in every icon, the power to change our hearts, the power to heal us inwardly and sometimes outwardly. That resides in all icons because they are part of the church's prayer and worship. Flor Father Pavel Florensky also said, uh, only saints can paint icons, which may seem a rather severe stricture and might make uh, potential iconographers say, well, uh, I don't think I'm a saint. But I think what he meant was not to discourage people from painting icons, but to realize that the iconographer is not simply a skilled artist exercising their aesthetic powers. Icon is part of a prayer of act uh, and act of worship, as I've said many times tonight. And so the one who paints an icon should see this as part of prayer. The iconographer prays while painting the icon. It's very desirable that the iconographer should have artistic skills. God is not glorified by ugliness, even if ugly icons can sometimes transmit grace to people. But we want the icon to be as beautiful as possible. Just as in the Divine Liturgy, we want the singing to be as good as possible. <laughs> God is not glorified by careless and inadequate singing. But the Divine Liturgy, even if the choir is not very gifted, is nonetheless always a miracle of God. So yes, what is meant is that mere artistic skill is never enough in the one who seeks to paint icons, that the painting of the icon is related to the personal life of the one who paints the icon, uh, that they themselves must seek to become transparent to God's grace, exactly that, while they are painting. Not just a question of human skill, 
but a question of divine grace working through our human skill. That would be how every iconographer should see their task, and they should pray before they begin to paint their icon. One could say the same, uh, only saints can be theologians. Theology is not simply a question of book learning, not simply a question of intellectual acumen. Uh, theology asks of us that we should pray. The theologian is different from a zoologist or a biologist. The personal life and moral character of the zoologist or biologist is not directly relevant to their scientific work, but the personal character of the theologian, uh, whether they are truly believers and whether they truly pray, that is extremely important for their work in theology. So the same applies to theologians as to iconographers. We may not be saints, but at least we long for the heavenly kingdom. We long to be part of the communion of saints, though we may know we are still uh, have a long journey ahead of us. Point, you talked about the iconographer offering God's creation back to God, and yeah. you mentioned briefly that this has many implications for ecology, and I was wondering if you could maybe say a little bit more about that. Thank you. The icon is, among other things, a material object. And it shows to us how God's grace can act in and through matter. We do not worship God solely with our minds. We humans are unity of soul and body, and we use the totality of our humanness when we serve and worship God. And so we can glorify God in and through our bodies, as St. Paul says, 2 Corinthians, or is it 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, glorify God in your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And the beginning of Romans chapter 12, Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. So we worship God through our bodies, through our materiality. And we use material things in our worship. Water in baptism, consecrated oil in chrism, bread and wine in the Eucharist, and so on. So in this way, our worship involves the material realm, it involves our bodies, it involves the world of material nature around us. We are not saved from the world, but with the world. We are called not to renounce the beauty of God's creation, 
but to take part in the work of transfiguration. So the icon is to be seen in this context. Material things are full of God's grace. We are to respect the world of nature as God's creation. We are to offer the whole of the world of nature back to God. And the icon, therefore, is one of the ways in which we express a true attitude towards material things. Now, the present crisis of the environment consists precisely in the fact that we humans have lost our true attitude towards the material creation around us. We have lost a sense of nature as sacred. And the holy icon, as a material object manifesting God's glory, can help us to recover a sense of the sacred character of matter. To quote John Donne, all things that are, are equally moved from being nothing. And a thing or person by itself could be that image through which you see God. My question is, my parents are no longer with me, but I have a photograph of them, which I look at, and I thank God for their life, for my life from them, for their godly influence. Can a photograph become an icon? <clears throat> yes, I believe it can. Um, a photograph in itself is already an icon in the broad sense of the word, a representation, a depiction. And a photograph then can become holy if it can become a holy icon, if uh, we so approach it. Not automatically. Now, that I could apply on various levels. It is possible that a photograph, say, of a well-known icon could be taken to church and blessed, and then it would become, in the strict sense, a holy icon. Uh, an icon is not limited to any particular material. It's not simply something a painted panel of wood painted in the traditional Byzantine style. An icon equally can be a wall painting, a fresco. Uh, that can be an icon, and embroidery can be an icon. Uh, and there is an embroidered icon up in the exhibition uh, here. Um, and equally, an icon can be from metal. There are examples in the exhibition. An icon could be a miniature in a manuscript. But beyond that, photographs also could serve as icons. Now, looking 
had the icon of your parents, because of your love for your parents, that icon, that photograph, does transmit grace to you. It's not in the narrower sense an icon because it hasn't been formally introduced into the church's prayer and worship through a ceremony of blessing. But it nonetheless does establish a contact with your parents. Through the photograph, you are brought into relationship with them so that the photograph also can serve as a point of meeting and a place of encounter. A photograph also can serve as a doorway. And uh, therefore, yes, a photograph can be an icon, and by virtue of our own personal faith, it can become a holy icon, even if it's not been introduced liturgically into the worship of the church. Yet, nonetheless, for us personally, it can be a means of contact and grace and a place of meeting. So I would apply a great deal of what I have been saying to holy icons uh, to your example of the photograph. Perhaps we should make this the last question. So make it an easy one, please. <laughs> Your Eminence, thank you uh, very much for your lecture. Two topics that you had brought up. One was the relationship between the holy icons and uh, the holy mystery that is the sacrament of the Eucharist. You also mentioned in your lecture um, icons as a mean of ecumenism. The question that I have, if you could elaborate on any possible connection between the veneration and the praying with icons in the East uh, versus and in comparison to the Western custom of Eucharistic adoration. Uh, the charge has been brought against Eucharistic adoration in the West that's in, that it's treating that which is supposed to be dynamic as something that is static, whereas in your own talk you've spoken of the icon itself as something dynamic, as an encounter, even though it is merely not only in the veneration, but in the gazing upon and opening one's heart. So any words that you might be able to offer uh, there would be most appreciated. As an Orthodox Christian, I have Yes, reservations about the service of benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. I would put my difficulty in a slightly different way from what you have done. The Eucharist was given to us in the context of a meal, the Lord's Supper. And I feel that the Eucharist should not be taken outside that context. Therefore, yes, we Orthodox reserve the Blessed Sacrament, and we believe that the presence 
of God in the consecrated elements is a permanent presence that continues, but we reserve the sacrament only for the purpose of using it for communion of the sick, so that reservation is placed within the context of the meal, of eating and drinking. So my problem about the service of benediction is that uh, if you take it outside the context of a meal, have you not somehow distorted its meaning? And that is why, uh, though I find services of benediction impressive and moving, I feel that somehow, uh, theologically and liturgically, uh, there is something questionable here, and I would not wish myself as an Orthodox for us to introduce benediction. But that does not mean that in any way as an Orthodox I uh, doubt the real presence of Christ, the enduring presence of Christ within the sacrament. Yes, um, now I can't recall whether there was a further point in your question. Could you just repeat what you said? Yes, uh, I am sure that Western Christians, when they pray before the reserved sacrament or before the sacrament exposed in a monstrance, that this is indeed an occasion of encounter and of meeting with Christ. I do not doubt that. Um, my difficulty, as I say, is that it seems to have moved the Eucharist outside the context of eating and drinking. The presence of Christ in an icon is different, uh, as I said, that an icon is blessed, but it is not consecrated in the sense that it does not change its nature. Wood and paint do not become a living person, but bread and wine do become the body and blood of Christ. However, underlying all this, though the presence of Christ in the icon is different from that in the Eucharist, I think that our relationship, whether to the Eucharist or to an icon, should always be personal. The icon should never be simply an object, isolated in itself. It should always be seen as a means of communion with the person. Just as the Blessed Sacrament placed in a monstrance when venerated by Western Christians, again, they are not venerating an object. We should never make the consecrated sacrament or the icon into simply an object. In each case, the material elements are a means of personal communion. So the essential thing here is to keep 
the truly personal element and never simply to see the icon as an object. Sometimes people say, the icon healed me. That surely is not strictly accurate. We ought to say, I was healed when, by God's grace, I prayed with faith before the icon, and Christ healed me through the icon. We should not speak of the icon as healing us, but Christ through and in his icon as the healer. Always keep the personal element. This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu.